Welcome to the latest episode of the Cood Street Podcast. As long-time listeners will know, the Great Lost Podcast of 2012, recorded during the Toronto World Fantasy Convention, are a part of Cood Street Podcast lore. A sad and painful memory of four wonderful conversations ever lost to perfidious technology. Today, one of the participants in those conversations, brilliant short story writer Robert Shearman and living legend Howard Waldrop, join Gary and I live from ReaderCon on the Cood Street Podcast. And good evening, Gary. Good evening, Jonathan. And I wish you could see the barely repressed chuckle that Howard was just doing at the living legend part. But, you know, everybody but you, Howard, thinks you are a living legend. So get used to it. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, certainly anyway, living legends are sort of connected to the, 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 the deep history of the field, Howard. I mean, I think you're the only person in this room, or, you know, in this pod discussion, who's been uh, published by John Campbell. Were you published by Campbell? My very first story was in was in analog. Really? My very first sale, right? Yeah. In, in fact, in that's Canada, it. That's been it. I was going to say you don't strike me as an analog kind of writer. Exactly. Exactly. But didn't you pretty much then kill him uh, by by, you know, by by being sort of you know, sort of published in analog? Wasn't that almost the last thing he ever purchased? I think. Yeah. He he bought it in uh, October, late October of '70, uh, and he died in er, in. Uh, June of 71, right? You know, yep. is one of the last uh -huh. things he bought, right? That's and always my aim. I mean, I'm right. trying to finish off. Right. Trying to finish, finish off your editors. Anyone who ever commissions me, I have to warn them you right. know, that there's a possibility that, that this actually may be a death sentence. Jonathan knows that I've killed more magazines and anthologies than any living writer. <laughs> <laughs> I was in the last issue of Galaxy. I was in the uh, last issue of... of uh, uh, New Dimensions. Uh -huh. I was in the last. I mean, it, the list yeah. goes on. I killed Crawdaddy. <laughs> oh I, wow! I killed Crawdaddy, right? I killed. Uh, I killed Amazing twice. Right. I killed it in six <laughs> in uh, what ninety three, and then again in ninety four. Ninety four right. when yeah. it started over again. Yeah. Right. I killed it both times. That story in the last <laughs> issue both times. Right? Yeah. You're like quite an achievement. It is. Yes. It's like it's like that movie Ring. You know, if you buy a story from this guy, right? Well, what it really comes down to is we editors are going to start recommending you submit to other people, particularly the ones we don't enjoy having dinner with. Enemies. And Rob, sort of since since we we talked to you last, because unbeknownst, I guess, to our actual podcast listeners, we did do a remarkably enjoyable podcast with you last November. Uh, yes, since, since then, I assume you, you finished the 100 Stories project. It should be all done. Yeah, I, I had a bit of a problem. Uh, I had a few months I had to take off because of family illness. Mm. Um, but I'm sort of back on track now. It, I, I actually now know precisely which every single one of the stories is. I'm into the 80s. Uh, the the idea of the book itself, which is now going to be a... It's, it's a strange choose an adventure book where it's all about the nature of what short storytelling is. So only actually read them if you follow instructions at the end of every story which direct you to other stories within the book mm -hmm. and um, there's only one way of reading all 100 stories without reaching the end of the book and you have to go back and find them again it's designed to sort of annoy people really because <laughs> obviously it's hugely annoyed me having to write them. Right. Um, it was a really it was a really silly idea after my third collection i had this idea that because my publishers wanted to produce a special edition and I, I, I get worried about those things. I, I don't think people get their money's worth. So I said, well, for the first hundred people who you know buy this, I'll write them 
know, a little piece of, you know, a, a very, very short, short story. I thought it would be about mm. 100 words. And I began writing them, and they ended up being about 6,000 words what average. Each? Yeah. So, and after I did that for the first few, and I realised I just wanted to write the idea properly, uh-huh. I thought I have to make this somehow become, because no one wants to buy a, sh- a book of 100 short stories unless there's a specific reason for it. And so publishers I'm talking to now, and there have been quite a few, you know, really nice, interested parties. Mm. Um, you know, if I'd come up to them and said, I'm doing a, a massive short story collection, um, they would have run a mile. Mm. But this feels like a sort of strange, playful gimmick. And I think for that reason, <laughs> they're actually thinking, yeah, OK, well, maybe we can see a way of, of actually making this work. I mean, they haven't read them. Obviously. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's possible to, they'll, they'll read all stories. And then they'll say that's that's the worst book we've ever come across. <laughs> but you know, in the meantime, mm-hmm. it should be quite fun. So no, it, it is actually going on. I'm, I'm still at the moment totally at the mercy of short story writing while I'm dealing with other commissions for other things. So it's exciting time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think. <laughs> I guess since you know, yeah. both of you within the field are predominantly known for for writing short fiction, I might start with one of the sort of generically sort of bland questions, which I think is nonetheless important. Perhaps starting with you, Howard, why is it that you write short stories at all? What, what is it that makes them special? Is that how Are you or... asking to me? Yeah, um, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, first, I can, I can usually, I can usually get a short story done in a couple of, couple of three days, right? You know, and see it and send it off and maybe make some money, right? You know, mm. and whereas a novel takes, you know, months, right? Mm. And and uh, but ideas usually ideas come to me in short story form, and and I work well, I work them out that way because you know that's the way once if you're reading science fiction from the time you're like six years old, ideas come to you in that form, in the form that you've been reading, and and uh, mm-hmm. so all my all my early ideas came to me in the form of short stories, right? And I ha- actually had to make myself in in the mid '70s and in the later '70s, make myself write longer, like write novellas and novelettes and stuff to get out because I noticed that in my story log, every story was exactly like 5,200 words long for the last like six stories, right? You know, and I said I'm in a rut. I've got to get out of this, right? So I did some of the novellas and novelettes that that I had thought of over the years and didn't have time to write. And uh, but that's that's the way I did it. Yeah. And go ahead. I, I sort of stumbled into it because I began in my uh, early twenties working in theatre, and I wrote exclusively for theatre for about ten years, writing sort of quite weird comedies, which you know would go around um, regional repertory systems in Britain and in Europe, and, and a bit in the States. And I moved into doing television and radio, and I never thought prose would ever be my thing. I, I thought prose was what you know, proper writers did. You know, I mean, I mean, I used to adore reading, and particularly reading short stories. But I would go into libraries and think that, you know, to have your name on the spine of a book would be the thing that I could never really aspire to. I was writing mm-hmm. for audiences, and I sort of fell into it in my late thirties, really, and just found that suddenly it seemed like the purest expression for how to tell the stories I wanted to tell, because I don't want to stretch them out too long. I love the fact that they start, you know, most short stories start with these great what-ifs. They feel mm. like jokes, but you don't do a punchline, you do an exploration of what that what-if is. And I can't see that usually working to novel length very easily, and 
I just find that I get so excited. I mean, I mean, I get ideas quite regularly. Most of them are terrible. But <laughs> once in a while, you grab onto them and you can find a way of actually finding a reason why you want to tell that story. And I find now that all the thoughts I get, all the ideas, you know, story ideas I get, do, you know, tend to gravitate towards being between three and 10,000 words long. And that's what I want to write mostly. You know, it's mm. so, it's strange how it's changed everything. And having worked again in, you know, in TV and film, where everything is done by having a meeting, where every single process is going into eight or nine drafts of people you've never actually met before arriving during draft seven and, and having all of their ideas, right. you know, and, and just being able to sit down and write and just having no one stopping you from writing yet and accept your own, you know, accept yourself, accept yourself saying mm -hmm. the story isn't ready yet to write. And it's, it's the most fun. It's, 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 it's such great fun. And every, well, I suppose the other half of that is the Doctor Who, every episode is basically the same amount of writing. Yeah, oh yeah, I mean, I mean Doctor Who is, I mean, when I did that, that was 45 minutes long. Yeah. It took me nine months to write that. Because, really? Oh yeah, because, you know, the, the whole nature of it is you are commissioned and you are under commission, under contract until they film it. And I was commissioned nine months before they Gee. they finished it. So what would happen is you would get notes sometimes from the editors saying, you know, draft five or draft six saying, we, we could film this now, but we're not going to because it's still got six, six months to go. So, <laughs> so, so, so write, write another draft. And you'd say, well, why? And they'd say, well, because that's what we're paying you to do. And then you'd write another draft and change things. And they'd say, well, that's, that's awful. We preferred it as it was. But we can't go backwards. So now we've got a crisis script. Oh dear. And, and that's actually what will always, I mean, I, I've seen enough evidence of that going on in films that you see films have gone on a two, or, two or three drafts too long, but no one ever oh. dares go backwards because that seems to be saying, we made a big mistake. Whereas in prose, we wouldn't do that. We'd say, oh, we shouldn't have put that extra paragraph in. Let's just cut it out again. And the, the TV, you know, it, it's a scary thing. So there's such freedom in just saying, I can go out and write a short story, and I know it will take me, if I'm actually, if I'm ready to write, it takes me about three or four days to do a first draft. Uh -huh. And knowing that on Monday I'll be finished probably with something I can look at by Friday, it's enormously happy and it's a wonderful thing I can tell my wife. Mm -hmm. but she can stop seeing me she being, can, right. well, because I'm quite moody most of the time, <laughs> and she knows I'll cheer up if I finish something. Whereas doing a script can take, oh, it takes forever. I'm so bad-tempered during that process. I should interrupt for a moment and apologize, and, 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 and Jonathan is well aware of the fact that we're at a convention, so I should offer either of you, if you'd like, a glass of water or a glass of wine, Ooh, um, and we should also, wine might be nice. we should yeah. also, well, the reason, the reason I'm mentioning that is that we have, we have a, a, a listener here who brought in some wine. Peter Straub is in the room. Hi, Peter. Um, and uh, oh, say hi, Peter. And Howard, you have not met Peter, I suppose. We have met. You have met. Okay. Yeah. This is this is a room party at <laughs> coming to you live from Burlington, again. Mass. Oh, yeah. uh, but oh, would no. any of you like something to drink? Um, some wine would be great. Well, you got okay. Just uh, water. Be water will be fine. Okay. We're gonna have to. So, Howard, during, during the refreshments break, yes. is this, um, is Rob's experience with writing short stories similar to what, you know, you've experienced? Well, that, that's I, I was freer going, and easier? I was just going to say, I went through a theater of uh, phase two oh, really? in college, and I, I wrote plays, and they were the most horrible plays that have ever been written on the face of the earth, and... 
then I realized once I started writing writing fiction, I could write about a guy who wrote a play that was an instant success, yeah. right? You know, yeah, without yeah. going through yeah. the problem of writing the play yeah. and stuff. And that's uh, like when I did uh, uh, what you call it, the the one about the uh, Grant Wood. Yeah. The one with the scenery by Grant Wood. <laughs> oh, the uh, uh, American Gothic. American Gothic, yes, American right. Gothic. And and it was glorifying the American Gothic is the is the, was Ooh. the title of the play in the in the in within the story. Right. But mm. that play was a success, right? You know, <laughs> and, yeah. And stuff. And whereas trying to write a play like that is what wasn't was oh, never a success. I had the right? worst reviews in my life. The worst thing is that you go and read the reviews, and and you've been to see the play maybe on its opening night, you realize only with the audience there just how bad it is. Mm-hmm. Because in rehearsal, you're still kidding yourself that maybe mm-hmm. you can defend that line that no one seems to like. <laughs> and then you see the audience falling asleep every night during the same thing. And you'll do anything to cut it. And then and then all the crits come out. And, I, and I've had some, oh, I've had the worst reviews. And things actually which you argue with because you know actually that they're actually still being too kind. I've I've mm. actually I've written to critics and said I think you've been too 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 fair in this production. Really? Because, oh yeah. I, oh, I had one which was referred to as a low brow bore. And, <laughs> and you know what? I thought it, it, it was worse than that. Actually, I mean, I, mean, I sat there and thought this is this isn't even low brow. This this, this actually has gone beneath low brow as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so, you're, you're making playwriting sound like the worst kind of writing you can do. I mean, somebody could fall asleep. Well, but but somebody can fall asleep reading your short story, and you don't have to know that. Precisely. You don't have to watch them fall asleep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I, mean, I can kid myself that uh-huh. people are still enjoying this as, I, as I'm reading, yeah. as I'm writing a paragraph. <laughs> no, it's but it, it sort of helped a little bit because I, you know because you become suddenly so aware that you'll do anything not to bore your audience. Right. Exactly. So as you're writing a short story, what I what I got always from reading your work actually, it's it's that sense of just moving on. I've actually told, wanted to move on to the next idea and to the next thing that you can sort of catch on to and, and, and the next joke and, and, and the next exciting twist and turn because you're because you don't want to lose the audience and get bogged down in pointless description or pointless theorizing. And and that's what I got from theatre is I didn't want mm. to get people bogged down anymore. Right. I think. Sam, is it Samuel French used to have the mm. the college playwriting yeah. contest yeah. every year? Right. I entered that thing for years, right? You know, yeah. and it never got anything. But they published a summary at the end, yeah. showing how many submissions they got from each state, right? right. You know, and stuff. And like it'd be one, you know, from you know from Texas, right? You know, <laughs> stuff, right? When I'd send it in, but I got I got tired of that by the time I was about 22 or 23, you right. know, right? Yeah. Burned out completely on the playwriting. Which is, which is odd because the thing I notice about your stories is there is an oral, there's, there's, there's a very deliverable acting voice. In other words, there's a, there's a, there's an oral tradition voice, which is unmistakable. And there are, uh, and it's, it's, it would be interesting to get a, a, a Australian or, or, or British perspective on that because there are certain writers who you hear, who you recognize the voice. Yeah. You may be the, well, you may not be the first one in science fiction. Andy Duncan does that now. Right. There are a few, yeah. And and that is strikes me as the kind of thing that's just ideally suited for theater. It, it, I was reading one of Howard's stories today. Mm-hmm. I was reading uh, The Ugly Chicken. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's great about it is that it feels so conversational. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can really that's imagine it's actually a song pulling you to one side. And telling you this strange hoary anecdote and you're drawn into it because you're not held you know it's, it's not someone pushing you away by saying 
we're now dealing with with uh, prose. We're doing it with someone actually wanted to tell you this story because actually it's, it's interesting, it's funny, and, and it's urgent. And that's what I love about that sort of, of that sort of short story writing. That that one was, of course, was one of the hardest ones I ever had to write. And the thing was, hmm. I knew I had to put so give give the reader so much information. Yeah, yeah. And I decided after struggling with it for like a month that I was just going to stop the story, tell them what they needed to know, and go back to the story. Yeah. And that just freed that freed the story part up. Huh. Yeah. Because there's these big gouts of like you know of, of like that's, info that's dumps. Why, that's why stuff, I love it. Right. You know. And it's, like it's, it's I realized that yeah. was the only way that story yeah. could ever get written. But by the time you reach those bits where people were talking about you know all the three different types of dodo and right, you, you, right, you are at that point so lost within within the the voice and that sort of humorous voice you're doing that that it feels actually like it's not being taught to you. It's actually just an interesting thing. And actually, it's, it's as interesting. I was reading it. I, was, I, I, I reached, a, I finished about a page of it, and just suddenly realised this is this is all factual. And I was still expecting it to be something sort of siding off factual. Right. And I was shocked and delighted to find I, re, I found that very interesting. I, I don't find birds interesting. <laughs> oh, I, think, right. I think it'd be crazy to find a bird interesting. Birds are like, you know, flappy dinosaurs. <laughs> I thought that was really, I thought that was great. I really enjoyed that part. It's one of the classic stories. That's one Yeah, of it's the, wonderful. Yeah, it is. It's like, it's like, uh, I was I was so pleased because Gerald Durrell, you know, who was running the uh, Jersey Wildlife yes, Fund in yeah. the zoo, he asked me for permission to reprint the story for all the members of the board right. to give them a copy. Yeah. And I said, sure. <laughs> and he was, you know, and he says, how much? And I said, what are you talking about? Yeah. Right. You know, I said, give everybody a copy. Right. Yeah, it's you know, no problem. With, right. Yeah. But it was like, you know, I've, I've still got the two or three letters we exchanged. Yeah. Right. You mm -hmm. know, stuff. Right. You know, and I told you when George Martin went to visit the place, there are dodos on each gate post really? above the, you know, yeah. when you go into the place. And George was trying to figure out how to get the dodos off of the top of the gate post, right? You know? <laughs> and I told Darrell about that. And he said, I'll have a guy go out there and check them out every afternoon <laughs> to make sure they're still there, you know, and stuff. But, like, yeah. you write a story like, you know, Ugly Chickens, and everybody sends you dodo stuff. Well, yeah. You know, anytime anybody runs across anything with dodos, they send me a copy, yeah. right? You know, yeah. and stuff, right? You know, and you're talking about Andy, Andy. Duncan, mm. and I, I forgot to tell him when I saw him last year how much he wrote a chicken story. You remember, right, from two years ago? Oh, called, uh, um, what, something chicken runs walks, in reverse. Walks backwards. Walks, walks, backwards. walks in reverse, right? right? Um, you know, it's a great story, right? You know, and and uh, it was just, you know, it was just wonderful, right? You know, and he he had that same kind of voice thing yeah. because he's telling the story as soon as I as soon as I started reading it and saw saw where it was set. I knew who it was about. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and, you know. and Jonathan, you bought that story originally, right? I did. It's in Eclipse One, I think. Yeah. Eclipse One, yeah. Mm. And it was it was also a story that raises an issue which we've talked about individually and separately. Several people, and uh, Jonathan got more of this than I did, but I got some of it. So we're saying, that's not a science fiction story. It's not a fantasy story. That's, if anything, historical fiction, because you can find that film clip. Right. That film clip is out there um, yeah. of, uh, of the young Flannery O'Connor. Um, and I think both of you have written stories that are just, you know, sneaking by because <laughs> because people know you On write charity, science fiction. Right? Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 
as George, George Martin point told me, and he he summed it up exactly, and I've never thought about it before. He said, "It's an Uncle Scrooge story without the ducks." <laughs> you know, yeah, right. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. something happens. You you know, and you go off on this adventure, and all this stuff is mm. going on, right? You know, and it like you know you get this you know you get the history in it at the same yeah. time, and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. You know, but uh, uh, I'd never thought about it that way. But of course, you know, I grew up reading Uncle Scrooge, yeah. right? You know, yeah. and stuff. My aunt got me a subscription to the comic book, right? You know? Yeah. I read them when I was growing up. Right? Well, Carl Barks was writing those. Yeah, Michael Carl Scrooge. Barks wrote all of them. Yeah, and he was a brilliant writer. Right. Uh, a couple of years ago at one of our conferences in Florida, John Clute put together a whole panel discussion on Carl Barks. That's great. And it was a great, but it, it was one of those things where nobody knew who he was until years later. Right, right. Uh, yeah. And Disney never, never let him sign yeah. his work or, right. or yeah. let him out know who he was, right? You know? Right, exactly. Well, and stuff, right? And it was only after he quit Disney that they started reprinting the stuff and giving him credit. And, and stuff, I think right? there were even I, there was some issue where there were signed panels of Uncle Scrooge that he was trying to sell, and they they got an injunction to keep him from selling those. Right, right. Yeah. Like, well, maybe yeah. not. That may not be true. And if it's not true, Disney, I didn't say it. <laughs> um, what, yeah, what he what he did was later later is he would recreate the covers exactly that's what it was he made original people, right, oil paintings you know, of covers that he'd done that he no longer just, had the rights just to tremendous, or never had right, the rights you know, to yeah. right you know but uh, anyway it's like you know it's like it is a Scrooge story yeah ugly chickens is a Scrooge story yeah, without yeah. the ducks right it is you know, it is you know I'm curious Andy's story you're right is is a is a uh, yeah, I've met Andy's yet. It's just a piece of fiction. I mean, the, yeah. the way to look at it is just a piece of fiction, yeah. right? You know, Unique so. Chicken Walks in Reverse. That's it. That's Unique it. Chicken Unique Chicken Walks in Reverse. That's the best title. It's a great title. I've heard today. So, <laughs> and I've had a lot of good titles today. So, <laughs> right. I, should, I should get that. Right. Jonathan, you were, gonna, you were going to say something. Well, I was just going to say, without going into the details of it, how do you both know what goes into a story? That stopped. They obviously don't. Right. <laughs> Something was spoken by right now. I think it's to do. Um, God, it's hard, isn't it? It's you kind of know when you're writing a short story that, however you write, even if it's a very, very naturalistic short story, that the amount of emphasis you're giving anything makes it feel weird and exaggerated because. You know, if you're if you're doing a short story about people having an ordinary meal in a restaurant, mm. and you know, so that's a married couple, and they're just and they're just talking, and and the wife starts, you know, reading the menu, and the husband talks about what he's been doing all day, and mm -hmm. the husband starts maybe you know, uh, talk, smiling too much to the waitress. If that was part of a novel, it wouldn't mean anything at all. It's just something which is going on. Mm. But but suddenly, just by giving anything under the microscope of a short story, it becomes weird. And and almost too emphatic. So it's about actually. I, I think that when I start the idea, I find what the emphases are as I'm writing it. I, I realise that whether they smile or not at each other, whether somebody actually frowns or sighs, suddenly becomes the thing which sums up that entire character. And that's the thing actually which sort of slows you down a bit because mm -hmm. it, it's because it becomes so important. Whereas if you're writing longer fiction, it doesn't really matter so much. It just it just happens to be how they are at that moment. Mm -hmm. So you you leave out anything that doesn't seem relevant. And I just find myself just cutting swathes of stuff because it no longer mm -hmm. actually chimes with something else later in the story. And I think it's sort of trial and error. Is that what happens to you, Howard? Not 
it's it's everything has happened to me at one time or another. <laughs> I mean, the way the way a story has been written, sometimes I know when I get the idea mm. how I'm going to have to do it. You know, what things I'm going to have to do in mm. the story to make the story work. Sometimes I don't have a clue as to how to get from the start of the story to the end, yeah. right? You know, and I, I've done, I've done, I've done them every way. I've done, I've, I've made myself sit down and write a story sequentially, you know, chronologically yeah, yeah, yeah. all the yeah. way through. But usually, I jump around, yeah. right, and put it together, you know, put things together later, yeah. right, and stuff. But not it, some sometimes whatever you're doing doesn't work for the story you're trying to tell. No, sure. And that's and you can only you can only learn yeah. that by writing enough of them it, and making them bad. It right? always you feels know? different, doesn't it? It, it does. They right? always every, like everyone is different, right? Yeah. You know? And it's like I never know, right? Until yeah. till I'm you know into it, what yeah. what's going on, right? You know. But uh, I've done I've done it yeah. nearly every way in the world, right? Yeah, and sure. Stuff, right? So neither one of you have a formula. No, no. no, I, no I, also, I think that as soon as I realize that I'm relying upon something I've done before, I really dislike doing that because it, it feels like you're copying. It, it feels a little bit like mm -hmm. you know the only thing things which I I, mean, I I have formula. I mean, I mean, I I write in the same place. I listen to the same music on the iPod usually. I walk around looking at the same parts of the Thames because I, I walk around outside mm -hmm. and everything I do is handwritten. Um, so I, I fall into sort of, you know, not not story-based means of making myself feel that I'm not out on a limb, but actually the way that you're writing it, you know, and again, I mean, sometimes I, um, if I've just written a story and it's been entirely um, uh, written in order, I then can't do that again for a while because it makes me feel like right. I'm, I'm almost relying too much upon that as some sort of um, um, uh, security blanket, mm. I suppose. So I'm always trying different things out because I don't want to bore myself, mm -hmm. but also because I really distrust anything I've done after I've written it for a while. It almost makes me feel a little bit like, I, I don't know, um, I, I, I find myself really disliking things I did maybe five, 10, 15 years ago because that was a different me, and I right. hate it when people point out to you something which you which you did, uh -huh. right. as I've just done with you, right. um, <laughs> and, and you think, yeah, I don't do that anymore because, right. because you move away from it. Right, it, it's tricky. You know, it, it's always having to reinvent the wheel every time you do these things. Right, it's like I I started out when I was young, and I said I'll never write the same story twice. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. You know, I vowed to myself yeah. I'll never write the same story twice, which is fine when you're young. Yeah, when you get older. And you've written not written the same story twice. There's not a lot of places to go, no, sure. right? You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> you you you're doing so. Like uh, Jonathan said, when he when I, when I did the uh, the old Mars story, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Dead mm -hmm. Sea Bomb Scrolls. When I got through, I heard a heard a guy in the audience say another land boat story. Oh, that's just kidding. You oh, know, yeah. and I said, and I've never thought of it as another land boat story, no. right? You know, because Heart of Whiteness, right, has the ice boat going up the yeah. river, right? You know, and I've never thought, I never thought of that as a land boat story, but he was right. Yeah. I'd had two land boat stories in the last 15 years, yeah. right? You know, and so you, know, you, you guys got to get a new act, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> right. it's the worst thing. But I mean, I, I found that I've written maybe three or four stories and they're all sort of weird different versions of heaven, which of course is very common. Right. But actually once people kind of say to me, oh, is it another one of your heaven stories? Oh, right. I can't write another heaven story right. again probably ever. Because I was horrified to realize 
I was falling without, I thought it was a different, different sort of thing altogether. But mm -hmm. if people start picking up and they, and they start saying to you, well, that's now predictable. Ah. I hate the idea of being predictable. Right. And of course, I, and I have to be, mm -hmm. probably most of the time I'm predictable, but I don't want to realize I've been so. Okay. You know, it's... I'm going to make a weird suggestion, which I am completely stealing from things that our friend Peter Straub has taught me. You guys sound like tenor sax players. <laughs> <laughs> you guys sound like, okay, we're going to do Here's That Rainy Day Again, but if you do the same solo yeah. you did in 1979, you're in serious trouble. Right. The, worst thing, the worst thing is when you're writing a story and you realize that you can find a connection back. Even though people will superficially not see any connection back to that same story you did mm -hmm. five years ago, now that you can, you can't write it, because people might make that connection. That Although it's a story now set on a different planet and it has a talking chicken in it, and the, <laughs> and the other one didn't, and it's right. perfectly naturalistic, right. it's about the same thing entirely, and now you feel like a fraud. And you think, I'm, I'm just copying. And also, that other one I did was better. <laughs> and you think, oh, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting worse. Yeah. I'm getting worse every day, <laughs> and, and, that, and that's an awful feeling. So it, it, it's, it makes it very hard. But doesn't that, oh. that, that that view though? Doesn't that deny the idea that you could refine and improve what you've done? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah. I mean, that's the worst thing too, because you look back and the work. It's actually when you start admiring your old work and realizing you could never write that now. Right. As well. Right. Oh, geez, you guys are depressing. I'm no, sorry. of course it's depressing, right? <laughs> it's, it's, I said yeah. I said that guy that wrote it, you know, that guy wrote the story twenty years ago was a better writer than I am now, yeah. right? I mean yeah. you begin to feel like that because you 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 don't want to do, like I said, the same thing or the, the, cover right. the same subject, right? I don't I don't know if y'all had this. I I I was tired of for a while of being the avatar of the zeitgeist. Yeah. Right. Because uh -huh. I would write a, I would write a story and do all this research and it would come out and die. Right. You know, yeah, nobody yeah. Uh -huh. would do anything <laughs> and then suddenly, you know, Philip Roth would come along and write on the same thing and make a bazillion bucks <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? sure. you know, <laughs> and stuff, you know, right. Like 15 years later. Yeah. But I'd already. Yeah. I'd already covered that. And that was in my past. Right. Uh, yes. You know? Like when I when I wrote us, which is about you know the three possible lives mm. of the Lindbergh baby. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. Right? yes. That was great. You know I was you know Politics like you know the three things he could yeah. have turned out to be. Yeah. And then you know ten years later, uh, Roth writes you know yeah. the plot against America. Absolutely. Right. Makes <laughs> makes yeah, yeah. money on. Yeah. Know? And <laughs> at the stuff. same time, believed that he had invented the entire entire idea of alternate history. Yeah. He wrote a piece in the New York Times book review in which he said, I've never read anything like this before. I think I just made this form up. Mm. Yeah. But Thomas Harris yeah. did the same thing with Fatherland. Um, you remember? Yes, absolutely. Came out? Not yeah. Thomas Harris. That was Not Thomas Harris. Um, Robert, Robert, Robert Harris. Robert Harris. Robert Harris. Robert Harris. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you can tell by the afterward he wrote that he thought he had invented alternate history, mm -hmm. yeah. right? You know, and so not knowing, of course, that high, Man in a High Castle had been written in 1962 and yeah. covered the, you know, uh, covered that, you know, yeah. completely before, right? You know, C.M. Cornbluth had written Two Dooms years two before dooms that. Two Dooms years before, right? Yeah. You know, and stuff. It's like you know, but you know, like when people come to an area or they get an idea in an area, you know, like especially mainstream writers, yes, they don't know what's been done. In that area before, no, right? right? You know, yeah. and and sometimes they reinvent the wheel and it works, mm. and sometimes they reinvent the wheel and it's just like Man in the High Castle, it right? Was odd. You know? I, I, I was when I was doing doing more my theatre work. There was um, mm. uh, Aitborn, who was a sort of mentor of mine in theatre, mm. wrote a time travel play. Mm. 
Really? And it was a play in which, in a hotel room, you went through different um, connecting doors in a hotel room, and you go back 20 years. And he was writing all these things for the audience. And, of course, the audience, who had never watched science fiction before or read any fantasy before, mm -hmm. found this breathtakingly original. <laughs> and Alan himself, who actually does enjoy the orbit of fantasy, uh -huh. was saying, I know what I'm doing actually feels derivative and must feel even more so to you because he knew I liked uh -huh. much more sort of uh, genre things than he did. Uh -huh. But they will never understand that. And, and, and things, I mean, obvious things like killing the murderer 20 years in the, in the uh -huh. future, because he's still alive in, in the present, only occurs to the characters near the end. And everybody I knew who um, read fantasy or science fiction was in the audience crying out for that revelation. Yeah, so right. Come on, come on, let's get it over with. And, and it's that thing where, where, where suddenly you find that you'll get all these crits, again, in, in the newspapers, uh -huh. and, the, the, and the critics only know theatre. And they're saying, this is the most remarkable thing we've ever read. Right. And I found in theatre, when I was writing theatre, I was stealing off all sorts of things, and I was being held up to be very original. <laughs> because because <laughs> all they could compare me to was Harold Pinto or Edward Albee. Well, and but, and but, I knew I was stealing yeah. Doctor Who plots. You know, it's the weirdest thing. Right. Right. <laughs> or J.B. Priestley doing that sort of oh, thing in yeah, 1939. Yeah. Doing amazing time travel. Right, right. Yeah. He, read, he read Dunn's books. I was on a panel earlier today and we were talking about how, or I was talking anyway, about how some ideas that once belonged to science fiction are now just narrative devices. Uh, time travel is one of them. Yeah. Uh, right. You get Aud Audrey Neffenegger writing um, you know, a romance which yes. uses time travel. Nobody bothers it. Now you have Lauren Bucus writing um, The Shining Girls, yes. which is a serial killer novel and uses time travel. And there's no explanation for time travel at all in these no. things. Mm -hmm. It just happens. Mm -hmm. And audiences now, mainstream audiences, are willing to say, oh, yeah, sure, okay, time travel. Yeah. Well, it's, it's right. no, it's no, we no longer own it in our field. Right. Yeah. George Zabrowski said there's been three or four films in the last ten years that actually did something new with time travel. Yeah. And I haven't seen any of them, right? You know, they just never played Austin, right? So I haven't seen mm -hmm. them. And like, uh, but he said, th some, you know, that like, like you're talking about, mm -hmm. it's yeah. now now part of movie, you know, movie culture, right? Absolutely. You know, I mean, there are tons stuff, of those right? things. You know, it's and, like, and, and they can be very good. I mean, and, and it isn't the film's fault that it's not trying to appeal mm -hmm. to a very, very small right, number right. of people exactly. who actually fully understand where all of these ideas have come from. Well, to some extent, I think we yeah. need to, I think we ought to celebrate that because one of the films which he might or might not have been referring to was the Back, Back to the Future. There were three of them or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. 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 Yeah. And whatever the flaws in the films, and there are plenty, they more or less educated a mass audience as to yeah. what time travel paradoxes are, why you can't, why you shouldn't date your mom. <laughs> right. Uh, and, yeah. And, right. and, and Which and I so, would stand up for. But you have a generation <laughs> of people idea. who saw those films at yeah. 10 or 11 or 12 years old now for whom time travel is okay. It's another Absolutely. narrative device. Yeah. Anybody right. can use it. See, yeah. that's, that's the thing. I didn't go see uh, the, the reissue, I mean, the remake of uh, uh, They There Stood Still. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I said, if they, they have to do it either retro mm -hmm. to make it work, right? You know, in, in mm -hmm. other words, set it back in the 50s again. Mm -hmm. Or they have to do it now with all the kids knowing the original yeah. of the of, sure. of the thing, mm. right? You know, and they're going to have to make references mm. in 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 the in the movie yeah. to the original, right? Yeah. You know, and stuff, right? Or it won't work mm. because yeah. everybody knows that kids have seen this stuff before, right? Yeah, you know, exactly. Stuff like that, exactly. right? You know. Yeah. And uh, so I didn't go. I didn't. I didn't want to see no. what they've no. done, right? Yeah. You know. 
I, I did see it. I, did, I saw it when it showed up on television, and I found myself reacting. I was one of those kids who saw the original, right. and I, I just was sitting like for two hours saying, "When are they going to say Klaatu Barabbas?" Right, exactly. <laughs> did y'all y'all read the uh, the a ABC uh, the a ABC online critic? I can't remember who it was. No. His 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 uh, his review. The headline on his review was. Clatu Barata Stingo. It's almost worth seeing it just to get that kind of But anyway, it's like you know, uh, like I said, I I I I had figured out for myself what I what I was going to have to see yeah. to be satisfied with it as a remake. But of course, what I heard was that they they'd done a different, slightly different plot and everything, right. mm. and it made sense within the within the uh, yeah. you know, movie, mm. right, and stuff. But Do you see a lot of movies. You've done some movie reviews. Oh yeah, show. oh yeah, right. You know, uh, it's like uh, some of some of. I mean, the last seven or eight years when we're reviewing some of the worst movies that've been out ever, right? You know, yeah. have come out, right? You know, and stuff. And of course, some of the best, right? You know, yeah. Because they sent us to review the Avengers, and I thought it was the best uh, Marvel franchise movie yet, right? right? You know, because mm -hmm. you wait the whole movie to see the Hulk get a hold of Loki, you know, yeah. right? You know, <laughs> that scene I've never I've seen an audience lose it three times in my yeah. life, and that was right. one, right? No, that 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 fist scene and the other great scene, which was a, which was a, a Joss Whedon kind of scene. Right. Is the Hulk can only turn into the Hulk when he's angry, and he can't do it at will. And the last, the last big spectacular scene is what people don't know is I'm always angry. It's really nice. It's really nice. It's also because superheroes. It's funny they're not really part of the British culture so much. That's true. It feels in some way. I mean, and there's a part of me which has resented it. So that when obviously we take from the states every big blockbuster movie and it's our blockbuster mm -hmm. movie but we're kind of being told that this is that 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 seeing the end of of the dark knight trilogy is a monumental epic iconic thing and i think batman was nothing to me except adam west when i was a kid <laughs> and so so i will go and see it but there's a there's a little part of me which actually resents seeing the new superman movie or and, and with the avengers yeah. i just I, I don't know i i I, I think I was in a bad mood that 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 month and thought I'll, I'll wait until it's on you know it's on TV over Christmas and now I feel bad because everyone I know has said it's it's a genuinely very very good movie but but we haven't got that same sort of iconography anyway I, well you have Beowulf I mean you've got you've got a lot more going back a lot longer we have longer. so many Beowulf movies being made by the British film and it's mm. <laughs> I, mean, I mean we sit around tables and we have our Beowulf figures it's <laughs> really terrific the whole Beowulf franchise. Oh. Right. <laughs> Jonathan, yeah. get us out of this conversation. <laughs> well, I, I guess I, I could ask a question. How often do you find yourself uh, re reprocessing the material that you experienced as a child into your work today? Because, you know, I look at particularly, you know, Howard, your work over the years, and it seems that there's a period of time you keep revisiting, even though they're different kinds of stories. There's a, a basic cultural milieu of, of, of influence and idea that you, that, you, that you return to and use as a wellspring into your work. And, is, and just to footnote that, because the first thing that comes to mind, Jonathan, when you ask that is a dozen tough jobs. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. 
uh, yeah, I mean stuff stuff from my childhood. Yeah, right. It's like it's I I, I gave a talk to the kids at Clarion one time, and I said. At one time, you can make certain cultural assumptions about the cultural knowledge of your mm. audience, and you can't do that anymore mm. because first, the cultural most of the cultural assumptions I grew up with and stuff are like 50 years old now, yeah. right? You know, and stuff, and, and the TV we watched and the movies and stuff like that, and now you can't do that because it's all balkanized, right? You know, yeah. into, into small, mm. smaller, smaller. I blame the internet, but anyway, it's sure. like <laughs> right, you know. It's like uh, uh, you can't. I mean, go into you can go into a room and you know, like like fifty forty years ago, you could say "Clatu Barada Nikto" and everybody in the room would know what you were talking yeah. about, right? Yeah. Even you know, just you know, not not science fiction fans, but That's everybody. everybody yeah. And now you can't do that, right? Yeah. You know, they'd be lost on like half the people in the room yeah. and stuff. But uh, it's like the uh, Andy Hooper. The story. Remember the story, Jonathan. I, I read at uh, at SwanCon. Yeah. Mr. Goober show. Yes. Right. Yep. As uh, uh, Hooper said, it would make it would have made a great uh, episode on the first Twilight Zone. Right. Mm. You know <laughs> and stuff. Right. Yeah. And he was right, of course. Right. You know, but it's like I mean the the it was you know it was a, he said it's a boomer story, mm-hmm. and anybody but boomers is not as concerned with it as any as everybody else yeah. right you know because it's about a certain period of time yeah. right you know that 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 where tv was new and then and then it referred back to the thing when tv was first starting you yeah. know the, before the war and mm-hmm. stuff right you know and it's like now it's like you know it's like i mean i wrote i wrote major spacer one of the things i did when i wrote major spacer is to just show that the technological change between 1950 and 2000 mm-hmm. that nobody that everybody takes for granted now, sure. right? Mm-hmm. You know, and stuff. In 1950, there was no videotape. Nope. Uh-huh. There was there was no there was you know they they uh, uh, Desi Arnaz was the first guy to come up with with a three camera thing mm-hmm. for live for TV mm-hmm. live TV. He knew it how it had to be shot, right? Mm-hmm. You know. If you're going to film TV without the cameras being in the way, you had to have three cameras, right. mm-hmm. and that isn't apparent to most people. Just thinking That's about true. it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and stuff. Like I said, mm-hmm. early TV owes it owes its uh, TV as we know it now owes owes a great debt to a Cuban conga drum player mm-hmm. and a crooner. Because mm-hmm. Bing Crosby's yeah. labs developed yeah. videotape, yeah. right? You know, mm-hmm. and stuff because they were doing it for a purely practical reason Absolutely. of what they were trying to do like mm-hmm. the Lucy show and you know because yeah. we wanted wanted his stuff available you know later right but it's also that thing that I mean, I mean I if I speak to younger I mean you know I mean I, I'm I, I'm of the age where when I was in my mid-teens late teens everyone began finally being able to record programs mm-hmm. off television and keep them forever but I'm still old enough to remember the time that anything you watched was ephemeral. I mean, that was the whole point of it. You could see it once mm-hmm. and that was gone. Mm-hmm. And I speak to people in their 20s now and they've never known a culture where all of their nostalgia wasn't always available. Mm-hmm. And for me, I mean, I mean, I mean nostalgia mm-hmm. is one of those things that actually is like a dream. You know, you, you don't, you know, you actually know that you saw something once and that was it and that was precious. Yeah. And now the idea that you never let these things go means that we have a different relationship with it anyway. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and I find that because I'm grumpy 
quite bothersome. I'm not quite sure why it's a problem, but it bothers me because well, I haven't got that. Because we're all living in a, in a severely fragmented or even atomized time capsule where if you put the things together in the right way, you can essentially relive your childhood. I've had this fantasy, and I'm surprised nobody has written a story about it. Maybe somebody has. But it's entirely possible to take a kid born today and put him in an isolated house somewhere mm -hmm. and run through the entire sequence of 1950s radio and TV programs and pop music, and he would never know he's not in the 1950s because you can do all that. You have access to mm -hmm. all that's those programs. That's a very programs. smart idea. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, so very smart. and at some point he realizes... But maybe we maybe we're all living like that. Somebody hmm. realizes that no, this is a facsimile world. My well, point isn't is, that basically we, that Jim Carrey movie, Gary? Um, was it a Jim Carrey movie? I'm not talking about the Truman, Truman Show. Show. No, no, it's yeah. not. Okay, but the, there was a there was a film uh, in which somebody is in a bomb shelter for 50 years and comes out right. afterwards. Right. I can't. Blast Brendan, from the past. Blast from the past. Yes, with Brendan. Quite a Brendan Fraser. But it wasn't quite that. It wasn't. It wasn't as though he had been deliberately cast into an environment of yeah. the past. But the, my point is that the information is out there, yeah, yeah. universally it, available. It to be fully possible. It's to, fully possible. To, to have a child mm -hmm. and to say, I'm going to deprive that child of anything except a genuinely chronological experience in the 1950s yes. on. Yes, exactly. And you never let them out of the house. Mm -hmm. And and you only actually release the songs in the order that they would ever yes, have been released. Exactly. Right. Um, and, that, and, and some people would say that that was child abuse. But I would say mm -hmm. that would be an interesting social experiment. There is a great story in that. There really it's, is. Well, I mean, I think you, that's you've great. got a hundred stories to read. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm desperate. I mean, I might, I might make that four stories. I might just stretch it out and just top it up into bits. But it, but it, but it is possible, and, and that's it's what you were saying earlier on, Howard. You know about the way that, that those cultural identifiers right. aren't there anymore because because everything now is so freely available, and the past is the same as the present. Right. How can anything that we say is a touchstone be right. Right, mm -hmm. be there? You know, if, if anything that was made in 1970 is as freely accessible as anything made in 2013. Right. How can anything actually be seen as being, this is the thing which, which sort of unifies us culturally? Right. And, right. and that and, and, and that's an odd feeling. And I'm not sure it's actually a bad thing. I don't itself, think it's necessarily a bad thing. Because I, choice is great. Yeah. But you were talking about the idea that uh, it, we grew up thinking that television, well, not music, but at least television was ephemeral. It was gone. If you yeah, didn't watch The Defenders right. in 1962, you would never see The Defenders. Yeah, right. yeah. There's a parallel thing to that. I was on a panel yesterday about Frederick Brown. And we were talking a lot about right. what it must have been like to be a pulp writer in the 1940s. When you assumed that your story appeared, it was on the newsstands for two weeks, and it would disappear forever. Yeah. Everything you wrote, you knew was ephemeral. Yeah. Uh, and, and then, of course, later... There, it turns out there are 19 volumes of Frederick Brown pulp mystery stories out there. Uh, but they didn't write with that in mind. They, no, they, what, would like, what would it be like to grow up being a writer in which you assumed that virtually, virtually everything you wrote was going to be gone yeah. weeks after you had it published? That sounds like Robert Silverberg's life. Mm -hmm. Jonathan? I said, I said that sounds like Robert Silverberg's life. <laughs> I'm, I'm well, telling Bob you said. Well, no, he he was that pulp writer though. I mean, well, so was Harlan. Well, okay, technically Bob was not a pulp writer. He was a digest writer. Okay, fair enough. Uh, uh, but Frederick Brown was a pulp writer, and, yeah. and 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 certainly Silverberg and Ellison and people of that generation wrote a lot of stories yeah. for super science monster issues mm -hmm. uh, that they never expected, and in many cases hoped would never see again. Uh, but at the same time, they. they 
they were doing that to make a living, and they were writing other stories over here which they hoped would be read. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and, and, and both Silverbrook and Ellison, I, I know about Ellison, I wrote a book about him, both of them earlier in their career, when they were writing these throwaway monster stories, were writing some of their best stories also. Um, and they may be selling the best stories to Rogue Magazine or mm-hmm. Night or uh, if they were really, really lucky Playboy. Uh, but I think that writers used to have to make a distinction between what you need to do to make a living mm-hmm. and what you want to say as a writer. Yeah. And they were not necessarily the same things. Yeah. Right. Somebody was talking about like the when when old SF writers started getting paid tons of money in the 80s mm-hmm. to like write a sequel to something they'd written in 1944, yeah. right? You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. They thought when they wrote it in 1944, they were going to get three cents a word and yeah. that was going to be it. Yeah. And then, of course, in the early 50s, the specialty houses started reprinting them and giving them like $200 for, you sure. know, like a right. novel. Yeah. And, then, and then the mainstream publishers, you know, started science fiction lines. And gave them like a thousand dollars for something they'd written in 1943. Mm-hmm. And then when paperbacks came along, they started getting like five thousand bucks for a reprint of something they'd written in 43. Mm-hmm. And he said, "You can't blame these guys for writing sequels to something they did that long ago, right? You know, because of course they were they were they were you know, money writers, you know, at the time." Right? There was a famous quotation from Arthur C. Clarke right after the movie um, of 2001 came out, and he got a huge contract. I forgot who it was from for what became 2010. Right. Uh, and he had, had never had any intention of writing it, but he'd never seen money offered to him like that in his life. Mm-hmm. And somebody said, "What are you going to?" What's the sequel to 2001? What could it possibly be? What could 2010 possibly be? Mm-hmm. And his response is, I have no idea, but for a million dollars, I'll think of something. <laughs> right. <laughs> 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 I'm curious, though, in, in this era of ubiquitous old media and the idea that none of the media we encounter is ephemeral, uh, how much harder can it make it for a writer to, to do what they do? I mean, Howard, you're well known for having said that you expect you know the reader to do half you know half the work you'll write the story they've got to bring something to the party to be able to understand something what you're talking about but can you depend on anybody to have encountered that stuff anymore or do you have to approach the task differently i i suppose i will have to eventually right somehow right i i i haven't encountered i haven't i haven't tried to i I'm 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 up against the story eventually. I'll be up against the story. I was going to write it for you for Eclipse, right? You know, yeah. mm-hmm. is it's it's a it's a war it's it's a World War II story that has to be told in chunks. Yeah. And the chunks mm-hmm. have to be non-chronological, and they have to be, uh, and yet at the same time they have to tell the whole story. Mm-hmm. And how I'm going to do that, I don't know. I don't know if I need to write the story I want to write and throw them up in the air, and however they come down, yeah. put them in that order, and try to let the reader figure all this stuff out from non-chronological stuff, right? But I don't know if I can ever be, if I'll ever be able to do that, right? You know, and stuff. But I'm going to try at some point, right? You know, it's like a, you know, I'm presenting myself problems that. But I think Jonathan's question also implies something, I think it deals with a lot of writers, that are, are, are readers today less willing to do the kind of work that they might have been willing to do 10, 20 years ago? I don't get that impression, actually, I, I really don't. Um, I think actually one of the fun things that you see mm. going on with um, 
the way that sort of book awards, for example, like the Booker Prize, well, most, yeah. most of the Booker Prize novels now are technically non-naturalistic genre writing anyway. And people are coming to those and, and, and having a sort of blurred distinction between mm. what we would see as being sort of, um, I don't know, uh, thought-provoking uh, speculative fiction and things that actually sell in, in mass market paperbacks because they're seen as being, uh, with a capital L, literature. Mm -hmm. And I find that it's odd. Um, I, I see people trying and experimenting, uh, 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 you know, people who are readers, I mean, with things much more freely now, partly because I suppose of the ebook explosion as well, where mm -hmm. everything becomes suddenly the same sort of accessible in terms of, of, of ease of getting. But I, I don't see people sort of really scaling down the, the common denominator that much. I hope not. I, I, I really don't. I mean, I mean, I'm not. I'm not just trying to be hopeful here. I, I, I see people really sort of being hungry to be pushed a bit further. I mean, Time Traveler's Wife that you mentioned earlier mm -hmm. is an example. I, I remember reading that before it came out. I got a. I, I, was, mm. very, I was very very lucky, and I got an yeah. early copy, and and I, and I loved it. I really loved it, and I thought this will never take off. I, I just think it's. I, I think it's tremendously clever and so well structured and it's actually very, very moving and mm -hmm. you will never find a popular audience. And it was huge. Yeah. And I was so thrilled it was huge, but I would never have expected that. That's a good point, yeah. And, and I find that happens quite a lot now. I mean, a, a book like Life of Pi, which is a purely, hmm. uh, it's a book of prize winner, but it's a purely speculative genre of yeah, fiction as well. It really is. And it's all about ambiguity. It's now a massively popular film as well. And mm -hmm. everyone I know who went into that People I know who aren't great readers went into that novel thinking they would never enjoy it and came out at the end wanting to read more books that sort of stretch them. Mm. And I think that as long as you write them, you have to believe people people are, are going to follow. I think. I think that a lot of us in the States believe, falsely or not, that Brits are more literate in that way than we are. Of course. You see, oh, I, I, well, 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 you probably would believe that. It isn't true. I mean, the thing which I've always got from coming to the States, mm. I come over here as often as I can. And, and what I used to do for while shops like Border still existed was I would take a day in any holiday to have five hours going along all the, the fiction shelves, yeah. finding all the books that would never reach Britain oh. and buying them up. Usually things like short story collections, which, uh, yeah. which, which we would never get. And actually, we don't really publish very much. Mm. And I would find the, extra, the, the, the whole range of interesting, quirky fiction out there, not in the, in the genre section of a bookshop, but just in mm. ordinary fiction, would startle me. And I would bring these books home and I would copy them because no one in Britain knew that, that what they were. And I've, and I've plagiarized some amazingly good novels <laughs> <I've> really, <laughs> over the last few years. And, but, but it is something where I, I, I look to America because it's mm. so vast mm. as well, and, and, and the literature produced is so vast, as, as actually finding, I mean, I don't know that they're selling great numbers, but they are in those bookshops. I, I think you're right. I, okay, I, I give up, you're right. Uh, <laughs> we've got... Uh, well, I mean, uh, well, uh, another writer, uh, in addition to Howard, who has a reputation for making some demands on the reader, is Gene Wolfe, and he's very successful at doing it. Yeah. Uh, and in England, you've got M. John Harrison, who yeah, seems yeah, to be absolutely. very successful at doing the same yes, sort of thing. Yes, absolutely. Um, they're not successful in the time traveler's wife sense, but it's successful enough to have a following and sure. a, an enormous amount of respect. So. Yeah. So. Yeah. So Howard, are you going to go ahead and doing go continue to do this 
horrible thing to readers that you make them do when they actually have I to think about it? I hope so, but, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll see, right? You know, it's like, uh, it's like, uh, you're, you're talking about Gene Wolfe, you know, the, he, he, he wrote me about two years ago and said, uh-huh. there's going to be, there's going to be a book called the very, the very best of Gene Wolfe. Uh-huh. And I said, in how many volumes, Gene, yeah. right? You know, <laughs> and stuff, right? You know, and then I was shocked when it was a one volume book, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's so I'm expecting, you know, yeah. a cool bookcase full, right? You know, and stuff, right? You know, and you can, you can argue with some of the choices in there, of course, but you can't argue with, you know, absolutely. Those were what, his choices. Right. And, and when he when he received the World Fantasy Award for that, you were both talking about having written stories years ago. The the first words he said, and Jonathan, you were there because yeah, you were getting a World Fantasy Award then too. He said, I wish all of you could meet the young man who wrote these stories. Mm-hmm. And I thought, <laughs> oh, that's, oh that's heartbreaking. That's wonderful as well. Though, heartbreaking and wonderful because he was very, and if you look at the stories that he selected for the book, he's very much favoring his earlier stories over his more recent but his more recent ones are brilliant yeah right he knows what he's doing by now yeah he's been at it he knows exactly what he's doing by now right Mm. you know and stuff right you know which is more than most writers Absolutely. ever do, yeah, yeah, you, know, like, you know like uh-huh. you know till they quit I mean, or, we, you know i mean we sort of fumble around as i do anyway i fumble around and like and, and i hit some good notes and i realize only afterwards, quite some time time afterwards, that actually, yeah, that, that actually wasn't so bad. Right, um, right. But at the time you're doing it, you're just, you, it's always a sort of wing and a prayer, really. Right, I think. right, exactly. And I just do it all the time. It's like, because it's my job. Yeah, so, I yeah. have reread mm-hmm. some of my old stuff, you know, right later, and I say, why did I do it that way? Yeah. Right. You know, because uh-huh. of something you've done since, sure. you you realize that that it, that's the way to work it. You know, like yeah. you know, whatever, however you did it later, you know, which worked better, and you know, but you didn't know that yeah. then, and and you can't do anything about it anymore. No, sure. Right. <laughs> You're just but, you know, you just yeah. have to you know look at it and regret it. But right? I've always you got know? this thing, you know, that and I and I tell myself this because I have to because I get nervous yeah. writing bad stuff, and I always say you know that. Any really good thing I, that I read took a risk to be good, because if it didn't take a risk and it was just someone operating in their comfort mm. zone, you kind of can sense it wasn't really pushing. But if, if it's a real risk, it has to run the risk also of just not working. So all the really good things I read was somebody being a little bit scared and edgy and going out there and saying, is anyone actually ever going to really accept this? Am, uh-huh. I, am I now going, am I stretching myself too far in one direction? Right. And the, the only writing hmm. that I find myself not enjoying, and I, I, I can enjoy some really interesting failures, even amongst my own stuff sometimes, but when I just know that I haven't really bothered pushing myself hard enough, yeah. that stuff I end up despising. Mm. You know, and no one's ever died. Because but you don't want to try to go back yes. and revisit this yeah. stuff. Like Howard said, you can't, you can't go back and fix a story that you know how to do better now. No, right. Because right. For, for one thing, you don't necessarily know how to do it better now. Well, you hope you know how. Well, to I mean, do it there, there, you know, it's it's one of those things like there are some director's cuts of movies you're glad to have, and there's some you wish the who the original yeah. cut, right. whatever corporate stuff got involved in, it, was better. Uh, there, I was doing this Library of America thing for 1950s volumes. And one of the things is what text do we use? Well, to some extent, you have to use the novels that people read and made classics of. Yeah. Not necessarily. The novel that an author 30 years later thinks he should have written. Yeah, absolutely. When Heinlein 
started restoring some of his earlier texts. Well, actually, he didn't do this, as the state did. But you know, to try to go back and look and and and, and unedit a well-edited story or right. novel is right. not necessarily a good idea. Right. No, no sure. And, and, and that's always been the case. I mean, you know, yeah. Wordsworth mm-hmm. rewrote well, yeah. the, the prelude all of his life, and the first version was the best. But he kept on doing it until about you know, over 50, 60 years, he was he was doing different editions of the same poem, making it more and more woolly. Mm-hmm. Thomas Hardy went back to all of his novels. Um, some oh. 17 years or so, having given up novel writing. Mm-hmm. And then I want to do all these different 1912 versions of his novels, you'd say. And all the ones actually that we, that we read in print, they'll, they'll have notes at the back about what the 1912 edition did. Yeah, you do. But we want to read that. the ones yeah. actually that, that were right. successful at the time, because that was the writer he was when he wrote them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and you change, and, and, or at least you always hope you change. Well, you hope you change, them, and sometimes there are two things. One is, as I say, the readership makes the classic, not the writer. Yeah. Uh, so the, and, and, and secondly, Writers get goofy when they get old sometimes. Not always. <laughs> you don't. Melville, Melville in you know, 1995 saying, I, I, I don't think that whale's going to work. Yeah. Uh, let, me, let me make it into Omu. Uh, right. <laughs> right. Uh, there's a story in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. They did it. It's called Orca. Remember? Right. Oh, Absolutely Orca. right. Orca, right. Orca, Orca yeah, right. That's right. The whale yeah. hunts the guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not good. Are we running short of time, Jonathan? No, we're, we're, we're getting to getting towards the yeah, the, the end of it all, I guess, for the moment. It's sort of our hour. Um, though it occurs to me, I probably should have told you. To, well, there's no way to get around the echo that we, when, when I'm talking on the podcast. But no, I think we're we're getting towards. And maybe a, a point to sort of touch on this, uh, would be what everybody's maybe doing next. I know Howard has a new book coming out shortly, and uh, in, in Horse mm-hmm. of a Different Color. Uh, and I'm also curious. Yeah, I, one thing I'm curious to ask on, uh, on the podcast, a good place to do it is, Howard, is anyone ever going to do an audio book of your stuff? Uh, there's there's a plan afoot by Small Beer for me to to uh, read read all of uh, Howard Who. Oh wow! Well, that'd, that'd be great. Out, that'd right? be wonderful. Uh, and and I told him yes as soon as I get the cataract surgery, right? And I can see mm, again, yeah. right? You know, mm. and stuff. And there's there's a plan to do to do other stuff, right? But but they want it. They want me to record Howard Who the entire thing, right? You know, and I said sure, right? As soon as I'm you know better, right? Mm, you know, good for you. And Small Beer is a wonderful, absolutely the perfect place to be publishing you. Right. I mean, any any press which is run by two very good short story oh, yeah, writers, right. <laughs> exactly. yeah, right? You know, it's like it's like you know, they're they. They just told me that the the uh, horse of a different color won't be out for Worldcon, but will be out shortly after that, right? Uh-huh. You know, so uh, you know we'll see, right? You know, and it's of course going to cause a bibliographic nightmare because the chapbook was called Horse of a Different Color that you wrote in on, <laughs> and, and then that's in right. that's in the book, right? right. You know, so people will say, huh, what? Uh, right? You know? It's gonna be it's gonna be like the Island of Doctor Death and other stories yeah. and other exactly. stories, right? Exactly, right? exactly. <laughs> right. You know. And Rob? Yeah, um, I'm still working on the 100 Stories book, which should be finished, I think, by Christmas and will hopefully be out sort of late 2014. I'm, I, I'm going back to Britain next week where I'm writing a new radio series for the BBC, which oh. is going out, I think, in September, October. So I've actually got to start because I haven't written a word of that yet, which is a concern because I'm getting emails about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing a, a, a right. new play at the moment as well for, for the 
and it's opening this this autumn. So it's fun. And I'm I'm working on my first novel, which is... Oh! Yeah, which I've been promising for some time, particularly to my wife, because she hates short stories. (laughs) She really can't stand them. She says that they're a waste of time. And she hates hates having to sort of engage for just a few pages or something and then just start all over again. And she just says, I actually would bother reading your work if you made it more interesting longer. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and save, save my marriage, I think. I'm trying to write a novel for next year as well. So it's, it's exciting. On the other hand, he says nervously, aren't you writing a story for me too? I am. It is, it is one of the hundred, but I just won't release it as part of that blog thing because I'm going to withhold most of those. I'm doing another 15 on the blog soon, and I'm going to stop the blog and say the other ones are being held over. But yes, but uh, you will get it first. Excellent. And it will be held over for as long as you need it to be. Or it will just won't be one of the hundred. But I am, I, 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 I do know what your story is. Oh, fantastic. I haven't written it. Oh, that's I mean, fantastic. I mean, that, I mean, that would be too easy. But I have actually yeah. got it for you in my head. Uh, that, that, that's almost reassuring. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I love the idea. You're writing as one of the hundred stories, but you won't release it because immediately I think of Clash of the Titans. <laughs> release the story. Yeah, the <laughs> story. Okay. Well, perhaps on that note, then we should say thank you very much, Rob and Howard, for joining us. It's been a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. thank you. And you know, I hope that we'll get to do it again. I mean, Rob, we'll see you in. Well, I'll see you in Brighton. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, that'd be great. And Howard, hopefully somewhere sometime soon. All right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Gary, Howard. we will inevitably be back here next week, as we always are. Yes, being our. Being only our dull, uncolorful selves, without, without Howard and without Rob and without <laughs> Peter, <laughs> just us. Well, thank goodness that they're out there to make us look better. Yes. Until then, <laughs> we remain now as ever the Mullers of Good Street. <laughs>